Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Why don't you bring in Stephen Whiting, he of the great linkage of economics into the decisions to invest. Joining us from Citigroup, the global chief investment strategist. Good morning to you, Steve. Great to have you with us. Good morning. What a rapid move we've had in crude. A huge, huge move from north to $75 to 52 in a matter of weeks, not months. Steve, Tom and I were saying that when things move this quick, other things break. What breaks? No, I think you can see that's indeed the fact that cross-market volatility, there's an impact here. Asset classes correlation between volatile moves, you know, tends to be a bit contagious. Um, You can see it with uh, a bit of credit. Uh, As you mentioned earlier, um, the high yield uh, sector in the United States is 15% um, energy related uh, at this point. That's still, um, you know, a much higher share than in the equity market. Uh, But broadly speaking, when you take a look at um, rising credit spreads, it's going to have some impact on on how much of a hurdle you think about uh, the growth hurdle will need to be in terms of equities. Um, so there's just a lot of this kind of rapid movement, again, by itself, uh, creates um, a bit of concern in markets. Um, ultimately, you know, the question, as you just said earlier, is any of it fundamental? I think a good deal of it is, is politics and policy. Uh, but uh, when you move away from all of that, you'll settle down eventually. So how do you position for 2019? I mean, take a blended Citigroup approach. you got Tobias Lefkowitz and Equities, Ed Morris on oil and your other great team, Catherine Mann and others. I mean, how do you position and set up for 2019? Well, for us, um, it'll have a lot to do with, I think, barbells uh, and the sense that for our private bank client portfolios, you know, we still have a 1% underweight in global fixed income, but we have a very large overweight in U.S. short-term fixed income. High-quality benchmark to uh, essentially the short end uh, that is controlled by the Fed, which has moved up a great deal, the flattening of the yield curve. Higher-quality products, some lower-quality products, uh, but very much the front end of the yield curve is a large overweight. Now, there's still portfolio room when you have, you know, incredibly low yields uh, across most of the developed world. There is some room to take some risk uh, in many international equities, but we have moved up in quality. For example, we've taken down small cap U.S. to to an underweight for the first time in this cycle. And uh, we still uh, think that we will have, uh, before this is all over, a recovery on growth expectations. We don't think 2019 marks a down year for the U.S. or the rest of the world. Uh, but it's one where we're going to play it a bit more cautious this late into a Fed tightening cycle. Well, let's pick out Germany as one country, uh, one country that's actually posted quarterly contraction for the economy. Steve, do you see that as temporary, something as short term and something we bounce back out of? Uh, I do. Um, very much. And look, I think a particular quarterly down move in one Eurozone country does not tell me uh, that we're back into the soup again. Um, I think that there are other larger issues, uh, the debt sustainability in Italy, how Brexit will work out between the continent and uh, the UK, these sorts of issues, you know, but a bit of a production weakness uh, in uh, Germany uh, over one quarterly period is not going to sort of revise our, our whole view of the region. Well, Steve, the market's smelling something in Europe and it doesn't smell good. Euro dollar, euro really soft once again today. Bunds receiving a bid through much of this year. I mean, the German 10-year yield is going to finish south of where it started the year. That's not a market that smells a rebound, is it? 
Well, it's one where the ECB, uh, again, is um, further along to not helping, uh, where it's been a huge assist along the way. Uh, we came into the year uh, with forecasts for Eurozone growth talking about boom. And it's been a terrible, terrible adjustment, right, uh, to get us to where we are now, which is growth in the region as a whole um, is right around trend. And that's where I think the exaggerations come into play, that there are particular policy concerns that you have to be worried about with the region. But that's not yeah. a reason for us to say uh, we want to take a look at the highest quality European yeah. companies and say, well, let's throw them out. Steve, how do you respond to consensus, which is a single-digit consensus wrapped around some level of gloom, some level of doom? I mean, does that set us up once again for double-digit return surprise in November of 2019? <laughs> Well, look, I do think that it is very interesting that the possibilities, like we have seen, right, in early 2017, you know, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. The dollar is going to go through the roof, and then suddenly you find uh, things go the other way. We have been building up um, a good deal of pessimism. Valuation uh, across world equity markets is down about 15% this year. That's rising earnings and pessimism. Um, yet I don't want yeah. to, at this point in the cycle, when we're talking about, you know, rate hike nine coming up. And I don't care if, you know, some news stops the Fed from hiking as much as people think. You know, we still have to deal with that news that when we're this deep into a tightening cycle, we still want higher quality portfolios. Yeah. But I think that the performance of markets, again, we could be setting up very much for a contrarian rebound. Well, Steve Whiting, thank you so much for uh, setting us up. And again, we'll get a lot more into this with a view forward into 2019 after what appears to be a single digit, if we're lucky, uh, 2018. John Levy with us here very quickly here as we look at Amazon HQ2, and he is the one to speak to. John Levy out of Richmond and uh, with a real nod of commercial real estate. John, I want to go over tax zone benefits or, you know, just the simple taxation of these transactions. A grizzled pro like you, does that pay off for the city? Does it pay off for the company or does it pay off for both? Well, it certainly pays off for the company uh, because they're getting huge benefits depending on where they're located. Uh, interestingly, Tom, in Long Island City, they're getting paid approximately sixty-some thousand dollars per job. In the Crystal City or the Virginia location, it's a third of that, only twenty-two thousand. And if you're in Nashville, you're virtually uh, not paying at all. It's less than five thousand. So tremendous number of jobs coming. Twenty-five thousand to Long Island, uh, twenty-five to Virginia, and another five thousand to Nashville. Uh, so it certainly pays off. Yeah. For, for the company, um, and, what, and I, I think, go ahead, Tom, I'm sorry. What's it do to commercial real estate? Just in the time we have today, I want you to speak to commercial real estate developers in Brooklyn or Crystal City. Do they win? Yeah, they do, uh, <clears throat> especially in Crystal City. Uh, Crystal City's been a desert. There's really been nothing going on for 10 or 15 years, and now all of a sudden, just the, the, the flurry of activity, apartments, offices, people that want to be close to Amazon. Interestingly, in Long Island City, uh, there, the, the, the facility is located in what's called a qualified opportunity zone. So there are a lot of tax incentives for people that want to put money in the area and defer taxes. Yeah. 
So, so um, interestingly, not in not in Virginia and not in uh, Nashville. Yeah. But there are a lot of federal tax benefits for people that invest in their backyard. John, my kitchen yesterday was a qualified opportunity zone. It was. <laughs> yes. I saw it. I, I witnessed that. Down in flame. I got some stuffing for sale. You, you by, by the way, that. Tom, I, I, I too remember Durgan Park oh, you uh, did, and the roast you? beef that came off of both sides of the plate. It was so big. That's true. It was. Did, yeah. did, did, did they swear at your at your mother, too? I, I don't remember that part, but I do remember it, it being exactly as you described, uh, kind of a scruffy area, to say the least, at that time. How do I follow this? Do you know why I love Bloomberg Radio so much? Because we never have these moments on Bloomberg TV. Well, we should. Where, I think that's guests, a, we should guests, do that for guests, 2019. Where the guests just feel like, you know what? I remember Durgan Park too, and it was I did it rough. with Francine today. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but you know, we get, get one more from John, please. One more from me, John. Have we seen the store closures? Have we seen the kitchen Good sink question. from some of these retailers? Because I don't think we have. No, I don't think it's over at all yet, John. But but what we're transitioning to, and I think this is pretty clear, we're going from shopping that's a necessity to shopping that's an experience. And, it, you know, in the old days, you went out because you wanted, you needed to buy something. Uh, now you don't do that, at least I don't. You, you know, you order it on Amazon, you order it through any number of other channels. And so landlords... And, and retailers are having to come up with more experiences. For example, in your backyard, um, there was the Rosé Mansion, which was a pop-up. And it allowed you to drink and talk about Rosé. Now you have something called Candytopia. Again, uh, an interactive uh, uh, exhibition that talks about a variety of candies. So I think landlords are trying to be more creative. Yeah. Uh, uh, retailers are trying to be more creative. And it's not just let's go out it's let's go out and do something different let's go out to an experience one of the big places that we heard about is 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 a bar where they have uh, hatchet throwing i mean who knew but this is this is hot people want to do something different and they really are we do that at surveillance every morning that's what we do at our 352 meeting we have hatchet throwing no better time to speak to Diane Swank. It can be on the Fed, it can be on the American economy, or Diane, it can be on the gift that keeps on giving, which I think is lower oil prices. Is that right? It is certainly during the holiday season. It's one of the things we think will give an extra boost to consumer spending during this holiday season, and it also is giving an extra boost to discretionary spending as well. Consumers are finally going back and buying clothing again. That's yeah. really strange. They've been living in gym clothes for a long time. But men and women are buying clothing, but also spending at restaurants, although it's weakened on a month-to-month basis in recent months, it's up almost 8% from a year ago right. at Full-service restaurants, double-digit. We've never seen these kinds of gains. Then how does Grant Thornton process the fact we're energy independent, we're energy dominant? It cuts differently than it did in the 70s or 80s, folks. This with 51.01 on oil. I mean, there is a, a part of America that needs a higher oil price, right? Absolutely. And one of the things we've seen already is whenever oil prices soften a bit, and they've softened a lot, as you've already noted, they've plummeted, that really takes away the only investment we've really seen in the U.S. economy. We've seen very little investment in the U.S. economy, except in the oil sector, in the innovations in the oil sector, the investment we've seen in the oil sector. It's been one of the backbones of the U.S. economy in recent years. It was absent 
in the third quarter, and now you're going to see a lot less of it in the fourth quarter as well. And it's one of the things we saw a recession in oil investment in early 2016 as well. 20 years ago, there was only one answer to the following question. 20 years later, there's a much bigger debate. Is lower crude good or bad for the American economy? You're absolutely right, Jonathan. And on net, um, it still is good, lower crude prices, because we employ some few people in the oil industry. But it shows up in our GDP numbers, and it shows up much more mixed. And the spillover effects of oil production go beyond the people who work directly in the oil industry. So it is a much more difficult thing. But at the end of the day, we're still a consumer-driven economy. And so it still nets us out to the benefit. But boy, do they feel it in Dallas. And to your point, Dan, where the big capex spend has been, has been in this industry, and if yes. this administration wants this country, this economy, to get a lot more capex, a lot more investment, it's got to be this industry that drives it, right? Exactly. And that's one that we'd like to see it much more broad-based. We haven't seen it as broad-based. The other big complaint I'm getting from a lot of clients in the oil patch, tariffs. The tariffs hit the steel that they import because they only have suppliers. They import it mostly from Canada at a 25% tax now. Diane, what is your working number for GDP? Let's go 12 months, 2019. For 2019, about two and a quarter percent. Much depends on whether or not we get in a full-blown trade war. I am worried about the next recession. As you know, timing it is really difficult to do. I've never forecast a recession, and I am now. This came up over cocktails last night because, Diane, I failed at stuffing. I'm selling stuffing today, but we we washed it down with some cocktails and uh, the failure of the stuffing. And and what you got that right? Uh, uh, Thank you, Drysack. And what came up, uh, Diane, was you don't see a recession coming. I mean, that's the historical study, right? You don't see it coming. But you can see the ingredients of a recession. And what do I worry about when I look for the ingredients of the recession? The risk of a policy misstep. That's gone up a lot on a multiple front. One, the Fed could raise rates too rapidly or too high at some point in time. By the end of this year, we'll see in one year's time a doubling of short-term interest rates by the Federal Reserve. They're still at low levels. But that's a major shift in interest expense on a lot of short-term corporate debt that's at record highs that's going to reprice over the next year. So that's one thing we watch. Another yeah. thing is trade. You could have a major misstep on trade that not the tariffs alone cause a recession, but the collateral damage to the second largest economy in the world, yeah. China. Not like Japan. It's got tentacles in every other economy out there. John, we got to do a data check. I mean, we're correlated in here. We got oil flat out plunging, 10 year yield coming in finally in two solid basis points. We're going to get a 303 handle in a moment. We're getting a little bit of Friday correlation, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And break-evens have rolled over as well. Dan, does it make sense that inflation expectations are hit when spot crude rolls over, when crude futures roll over the way they have done? It is really amazing is how correlated inflation expectations are to oil. It always has been. It always will be. What really matters is over the longer haul what happens to core inflation because that's what we converge to. Now, Diane Swank, thank you so much. This is great. We've got oil and we've got a wonderful guest with us uh, right now. Christian Malik is out of the hugely prestigious Imperial College Com- Chemical Engineering Program and knows the visceral nature of the oil market like uh, few do. He joins us now, of course, with J.P. Morgan Kazanov uh, in London right now. Uh, Christian, I know, I know you look at Brent crude as a global oil price. Here in New York, we're focused on the dynamics of 
West Texas Intermediate, 51, a 50 handle earlier. Is there is there a symbolism to West Texas going through $50 with a 49 per barrel print? Does that matter? Um, Tom, great question. Very kind words. Um, I, I think to sort of to say to say from from the outset, you know, as a house, J.P. Morgan's been bearish uh, for the best part of eighteen months. Uh, we've been calling for fifty to fifty to sixty dollar a barrel for some time now, uh, and we sort of stuck to our guns. And the main reasons for answering your question, Tom, is we've looked at the cost curve and a lot of depth. And every time you look at the marginal cost to produce oil, it's somewhere between forty and sixty dollars a barrel Brent. In in fact, every time you talk to a major or you look at the premium. Yeah. They're getting more efficient to produce oil, and therefore, when you think about the risk premium, the question that I think some of us are asking is: Should it have ever been at eighty-five when, 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 it, when the cost of the cost to produce oil is somewhere around fifty? Your cost curve shows a Russia challenge. Now, we've heard earlier, Pim and I heard earlier that Mr. Putin maybe will meet with the Crown Prince or other worthies at G20, maybe even before that. How does Russia fit into the supply calculus right now? Well, it's a good question. And when we look at we 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 did this work called the break-even championship. It's a global study looking at break-evens, not just on the cost curve, but also country break-evens, OPEC yeah. and fiscal. Um, and so it was almost like sort of let, let's think about this massive cost curve with everybody on it, not just the projects. And Russian study were very interesting. Russia uh, Russia's break-even somewhere between forty and fifty. And in fact, what was quite controversial when we published this back in March is we said that the Saudi fiscal break-even and Saudi OPEC fiscal break-even is now somewhere between uh, 50 and 70. So when you triangulate the Saudi fiscal break-even alongside the Russia break-even, what's really interesting is that, you know, for Russia at least, uh, their pain threshold is far higher. They can cope with oil with with a five-handle. I don't think they're loving it, but they can absolutely cope with that, um, which then sort of puts the ball back in Saudi's court and OPEC as to whether they can actually manage that kind of uh, break-even price. And when we think about the OPEC meeting in June, I think what, what we sort of people missed in terms of the production hike was that they were feeling far more comfortable with oil in you know, the sort of 50 to 70 range or in 50 to 60 range because they've managed to fix their economies, take those break-evens down a lot more than when they cut in 2016, which, as you remember, their break-evens were north of 90 across the board. Are investors prepared for new oil and new energy coming on market? And I'm thinking about the recent find and discovery in the Gulf of Mexico, about 200 miles south of New Orleans by Chevron. That is scheduled to come online. Plus, you've had recent comments from the head of Petrobras saying that the firm is going to focus on exploration and production. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely right. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, when, when we think about uh, the, the, the concerns around a supply crunch, I mean, one of the things that we sort of kept arguing for why all would be capped around 50 to $60 is that it's, you know, the, the short-term mirage of limited supplies has once again been pushed out of the picture. Uh, and and you, men, you make, you know, the, the fact that we have um, big oil now sort of moving in, so to speak, in, into shale is something which, as you point out, is going to massively accelerate um, production in the Permian. The question is for how long? I mean, a lot of people are arguing for a rollover in share production at some point in the mid-20s, and I think there is a risk around that. But in the short to medium term, you have a scaling up of the Permian, and when you have the big oil or the super majors moving in, they've got the infrastructure, the balance sheet, the scale and the technology to, to really scale this, the, the outlook um, yeah. meaningfully higher. 
Yeah. Is there is there sweat at Vienna December 6th? I mean, is it just another, you know, photo opportunity for a bunch of oil ministers, or can something actually get done yeah. around the tensions of this price? Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. I, mean, I, I think I think what the market's doing is putting OPEC's feet on the fire. Um, and yeah. when, when we discussed OPEC, and we, we, we published a note a few weeks ago arguing that OPEC would kick the can down the road, and I think with this move in oil, it's sort of a bit circular, right? When oil moves lower, you start to think OPEC has to act. I think the, 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 the base case is that OPEC will cut. Um, we disagree. In fact, our call is that OPEC will um, sign a deal that's a weak deal. Um, if there is some sort of paper restriction on production for next year, it's likely to be with several caveats. So if those expecting OPEC to do a sort of massive U-turn on the summer where they did a U-turn in itself, it's unlikely. I think they like the newfound market share. They've recognized Permian's here to stay. I don't think we'll quite give up, you know, it's not likely we get a sort of November 14 uh, repeat, but it's going to be one of the weakest deals that yeah. we see signed into 2019. Just wonderful break. Thank you so much. Christian Malik with J.P. Morgan Kazanov out of London on uh, EMEA uh, Oil. Now, as we had Joe Feldman earlier, his colleague in crime, Dana Telsey, joins us. Telsey Advisory Group. Dana, open question. You walk into Macy's on a day like this. What does a grizzled pro like you look at? What do you observe or what do you study when you go into a Macy's on a Black Friday? When I go into Macy's, and I was there last night for a couple hours after they open, I'm looking at what's the traffic like, what is the rate of the promotions like, and where are the crowds. And I could tell you where the crowds were last night. Please. It's cold out in New York. It was all about boots. Those Ugg boots are basically what people were buying, and it was about sweaters and it was about gloves. Can, That's what the key with the, where the traffic was. Can they change price on those items? Is there an elasticity where they can adapt to the weather to uh, sustain profit? I think there is to some degree, but keep in mind a lot of these promotions have been planned months in advance for this day. Yeah. And you're not just looking at the single retailer, but you're looking at the competitive envi- environment around you. It's how you... How you coordinated with the brands in order to move product given such a, given such an important day. Dana, can you speak to the issue of inventory? Are stores lean with their inventory this season? Stores are in a good inventory position. I would say, don't forget, some of them brought in goods a little bit early in advance of what could be some expected tariffs coming up, but they are definitely in a good position. They're not over-inventoried. They're priced for goods to move, and if they run out, then they have demand to in other items or other brands that could fill that demand. Doesn't seem like there's any excess inventory in, in any big ways. And having the cold weather helps. The other category is toys, given Toys R Us is no longer here and 40% of Toys R Us sales occurred in the fourth quarter. Everyone is out there looking to grab market share in toys. Who's going to win and who's going to lose? Who's the store or the retailer that has the most at stake this season? I mean, when you think about the retailers overall, we have the, the discounters should certainly get a good share. The private labels that Target has invested in, the omni-channel initiatives that Walmart has, and frankly, the strength that's been nice to see is the momentum that Kohl's has. Kohl's has really, whether it is yeah. in the active category, it's in toys, they've really reinvented themselves. Dana, we've had fun today uh, with the geography of Boston. We say good morning, 1061 FM Boston. 
on the names of another time and place. And as I've said many times before, Ms. Telsey lived this at Bergdorf Goodman, but Jordan Marsh, Filene's, Pim was mentioning uh, a number of the New Best York Best in story. company. Yeah, Michael Barr, Crowley's of Detroit, and on and on. Dana, are we ready for another consolidation in bricks and mortar retail? I think we are. I think overall it certainly takes time to close stores. This year you obviously have Sears and you're going to have Toys R Us. Yeah. I think we're going to continue to see companies, whether it's Gap or whether it's L Brands of Victoria's Secret, who basically have each articulated that they're re-looking at their physical store space at the Gap brand and at Victoria's Secret re-looking at everything. I think we're going to see companies reinvent themselves. Department stores may have been a little bit ahead of the curve in embracing Omnichannel, and now you're seeing specialty come next. You see, Tom, it's not all bad. It's just transformation. What is Omnichannel? Means How is you that can been be, defined? It means that I you can have about, money re, re, pulled out of your pocket in any way, shape, oh, or really? form. How do you exactly, define shopping it? everywhere, anytime? That there's never the, the word closed is never an option. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll See, go. I, it's I different know than that. the old yeah. Jordan Marsh where they actually had, right. you know, but store hours. Dana, Mike, Mike Allen over at Axios has that statistic of the day, which is 37% of shopping's done on smartphones. Really? It's a huge number. Smartphones and mobile are definitely growing in the transaction on mobile. And frankly, having screens that can have, that, that are bigger with its visibility helps. And I think you are seeing definitely more shopping on smartphones phones done and more conversion being done what does that mean for bricks and mortar i mean if I, i'm in barney's on madison and i want something in some other place and i'm on my i'm literally on my smartphone in barney's buying it you know name the store right mm -hmm. i think overall what it means is the fact that now you can even have digital orders fulfilled in stores you may buy it online and pick it up in the store and look at some of the retailers out there Kohl's gave the numbers that they're going to fulfill 5 million units in November that are picked up in store and 5 million in December. When companies have, when retailers have consumers come in the store to pick something up, guess what they're doing? They're buying something else also. That can attach around 20 to 25% to the average transaction. Well, when Tom goes shopping in a store right now, is he going to be paying full price? Today, you're going to be paying a discount. Today is the, the day when almost every brand and every company, there's something you can get a deal on. And you know what you're going to buy? The two words of the season to remember the gifts of the season. It's about smart and it's about cozy. It's about smart because whether it's smart speakers, smart home devices, wireless earbuds, and it's about cozy because Sherpa sweaters, yeah. pajamas, fluffy, fluffy blankets. So at Bergdorf, the Charlotte, Charlotte Simone Polly Pop two-tone first slip-through scarf which looks like something out of the 50s at $250. That's cozy? That's what they call cozy. As That's long as it cozy. keeps you warm, it's about being cozy. Okay, Dana Telsey, have a cozy. Stay stay warm, Dana Telsey, as you, you too. go from store to store. Dana Telsey, iconic with the Telsey Advisory Group. Have a great holiday. You too, Dana. Thank you so much uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.